Let's stand again. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. We, we see a strange, a strange verse. If we stop and think about it at all, we think, how can this be? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you would uh, let it strengthen us today. Help us to have insight and understanding today. And Lord, for those who may be facing persecution today for your name's sake, give them strength. Father, we know there are those around the world who are facing things that are unimaginable to us for your name's sake. Give them strength today and help us and guide us as we live for you in this day, in this age, to stand boldly in your name for the glory of your kingdom. Amen. Blessed are the persecuted. Wow. That's something to think about. As we've been looking these past eight weeks at this uh, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and looking at this Jesus, uh, this message of Jesus on his kingdom, we've seen that the prime objective of Jesus is to teach his people how to live in the kingdom of God and to be built to last, to be to build their lives so that they will be unshakable in this world. Up, up to this point in the message, Jesus has been speaking about the character, the nature of the true follower of Christ. And, it, and he makes it clear to us that it is required for that nature to be built in us, for us to have a life-altering experience with God. A life-altering experience. Now, now listen, as Christians, we know that our life is supposed to be founded on the Word of God. The Word of God is our standard for faith and conduct. And so we always, our experiences do not dictate our lives. The Word of God dictates our lives. Many experiences can be false. It's the Word of God that is always true. So I can't just say, well, I feel this, or I experienced this, or this happened to me, therefore that's the way things should be. No, it's all got to be judged by the Word of God. I've got to come back and see what the Word says about it. But the Word also points out to us some very clear and real experiences that we need to have. Things that we need to experience in the kingdom. It's not just about book learning. It's about knowing God. It's about walking in God's presence. It's about a revelation of who God is. So this, this thing that we're, we're in the middle of here, it's not just a religious decision that we make. It's not just a, a, you know, a mindset that we change. Oh, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. I think I've decided to do this. It's not just a a set of actions that I adopt into my life. No, real Christianity begins with a life-transforming moment. It, it begins with this revelation of who God is. 
This is the dangerous thing, again, for those of us who are second and third generation Christians who've grown up in church and around the things of the church that we know all the right things to say, all the right things to do, when to raise our hands, when to sit down, you know, when to make a pledge, when to volunteer for a minute. We know all the right stuff, but have we been transformed by the presence of God? There has to come this moment, a moment in time where you sense God and you know yourself and you find yourself humbled Humbled, broken by the power of God's presence. Where, where the hold of the world lessens and the desire to know and please God takes hold of your life. It is a culture shift. It is a mentality shift from where you were dreaming your own dreams about what you thought was going to bring happiness and fullness until you begin to understand that the way the fullness of life comes is in the middle of God's will and knowing Him. It is a day when the grip of temptation is loosened. Now, I'll tell you, temptation keeps coming back at you. But the grip of it, the, the, the thought that I can't be happy and live life without doing this thing, without being this way. This is the way that that gets loosened, and all of a sudden, all of that comes into question, and you know that's got to go, and God's will's got to come. And and we we can do all that in our mind, and that grip still be an iron grip on our spirit. It's when you meet God that that grip is attacked. It's it's. Pounded by the presence of God, and all of a sudden you know, it's not this world that's ever going to bring me happiness. It's not this world that's ever going to bring me joy. It's not this world that's ever going to build hope in me. It is the very presence of God. It is Him living and ruling in my life. And a new quest begins in life to find Him. So let me ask you again, like we asked you a a week ago, has that happened to you? Have you had that moment? See, you, you may not remember the first time you came to church. You may not remember even the first time you raised your hand because you felt like you should. You may not remember a lot of things, but when you meet God, you're going to remember it. When you meet God, it it may be in your bedroom late at night. It may be around an altar. It may be in a worship time. It may be on a walk out where you're praying and crying out to God. But when you meet God, you're not going to mistake it. The presence of God falls on our life and begins to change us and begins to move in our life. So let me ask you again, has that happened to you? Have have you come to this point where the world, the grip of the world is loosened on you and you know, I'm not trying to please this world anymore. Don't even want to. It is a mirage. Reality is in the presence of God. Now let me tell you, if all you've got is religion, if all you've got is, you know, some actions, and you're trying, if, but you believe Jesus, then listen to the words of Jesus. He says, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. Listen, if you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. You're going you're gonna to find him. You're going to come into relationship with him. You're going to meet his presence at some point in time. It's more than just knowing about him. You're going to come into this place where you meet him. 
And so if that's never happened, if you've never come to this point of, of really having this experience with God that is biblically defined for us, then I would tell you in the days and weeks ahead, you need to begin to make that prayer yours. <clears throat> Jesus, I want to know you. I want more than religion. I want more than head knowledge. I want to, I want to know you. I want, I want you in my life. God, I want the grip of this world to loosen in my life. I want the grip of temptation to be smashed in my life. I want to know you. God, reveal yourself to me. Now, when he does, when he reveals yourself to me, a very amazing thing happens. You come face to face with who you are. And it's not a pretty picture. It's not a pretty picture. This is what Jesus is, is talking about. This is what he's telling us. See, after encountering God, the progression in the kingdom becomes natural. Because when you, when you encounter God and you see him and you see yourself, it becomes very natural for, for us to look and to see the greatness of God, to see how far short of his glory we have fallen. And it's a natural thing for us to, to mourn over our condition. It becomes a natural thing at that point for us to become meek before God. See, this is the danger between just knowing about him and knowing him. If you just know about him, you try to justify all of your things. You, try, you see people working around the clarity of Scripture. You see them uh, uh, building their, their own defenses for how they live their life. All the excuses stay there. You're not meek before him because you know about him. You try to twist the Scripture to make it say what you want it to say. You try to do all of these things so you can live the way you want to live. But when you meet him and you know him, conviction comes, reality comes, and all of that stuff gets swept aside. And suddenly, in that moment, a meekness comes and says, God, whatever you want from me, your way is my way. I, I, I can't do this. So there's a danger. This is why you're not built to last until this happens. And when that meekness comes, a hunger and thirst comes for righteousness' sake. Now, there's people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but it's built on, on religion and upon self, and it becomes very twisted. It becomes very legalistic. It becomes very demanding. They build their self a little, a, a little you know, armor of their own life, of how, how Christianity is supposed to work, and instead of it being merciful, it becomes demanding, and they try to fit that on other people and demand for other people, and their patience isn't there, their mercy isn't there, because the righteous do it this way. Instead of the meek, who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness, and who understand that others are on the journey as well, I'm going to be patient with them, loving with them, not demanding to them. And it leads us to this purity of heart that says, I just want to live to please God. I just want to love other people. And it leads us into this fullness of the kingdom of God. It's a natural progression. And it's a process that is necessary for us to be built to last. And I would tell you today, all the steps are required. All of them are required. And all will happen as a person sees God and humbly begins to seek him but they're required. He shows us, here's the character, the makeup of the believer. And it's all in these passages that we've been looking at these last few weeks. But here, where we come to today, the message transitions. It turns. Because, see, even the transformed heart, even the heart 
that is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, even the heart that is desiring a purity, has to be retaught how to see the flesh, the culture of the day, former teachings that we've heard, desires that we have, peer pressure that surrounds. All of these combine to blind us, to confuse us to proper beliefs and action. So without the transformation and without the clarity of the Word, all of this gets real ugly and and, and, and very uh, legalistic. But in the weeks ahead, as we talk, as we go our way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, if you come out and you hear these messages, you're going to hear them many times where Jesus in in the middle of this says, you have been told, you have been taught, but I say unto you, what's he doing? He is challenging the core perceptions of our life that have been embedded in us by legalism or by culture or by some other thing. And he says to us, that's not the way, this is the way. You think you got that right? I'm telling you, you got it wrong. And the transformed heart doesn't see that through a you know, a grind of, oh, I've got to add this other thing to my life as a way to act. No, the transformed heart, heart leaps towards it in hunger, trying to discover the fullness of what God has for it. So again, has your heart been transformed? Have you cried out to Him? Have you come to this place of desperateness where you realize that without the help of God, you're lost? And then when you come to these scriptures, you come to them with this openness and this meekness that opens your heart up to be, to be connected with the truth. Now, the focus of the Sermon on the Mount, it, it hinges right here. We, we're transitioning from what happens when we meet God to this new clarity and these kind of things that we need to understand about God and about the kingdom that we're going to study more on in the next few weeks. But here's a, here's a truth we need to capture. The trans, this is what I really want you to see tonight. The transformed life will find itself from time to time in conflict with the life that has not seen God. That's going to happen to us from time to time. The life that that may even believe that it is God-centered, you'll find yourself in conflict with them at times. And definitely with those who are still being led by their own understanding. You're going to find yourself, as you're humble before God and meekly seeking Him and turning to His Word, you're going to find yourself from time to time in conflict. In America, we have been blessed to live in a time of freedom, a time where serving God has basically been free and, and, and separate from persecution. We can come here today and not hide. We, we, can, we can have a big picnic outside, and nobody's going to come say, you Christians got to stop this. You can't do that here. We're free from those kind of persecutions for the most part. But there's a growing sentiment against the things that we believe. There's a growing sentiment against it. And we need to understand that how, as we stand here in freedom, that is not the case in much of the world. There are people today who are being martyred simply because they're Christians. Their their lives are being taken from them on this earth simply because they're a follower of Christ. That's not something from the past. That should be present day headlines. It's going on today. There are people who are in prison today 
because they're Christians, because they're pastors, or because they proclaim the gospel to somebody. There are people who've been cut off from opportunities to grow in jobs and to have opportunities for their family because they're Christians and many, many other things simply because they're a follower of Christ. Frankly, any persecution we face on this, or on this in America is much lighter than what many of our brothers and sisters are facing around the world today. Our prayers should be with them. Our support should be with them. But we need to be serious and we need to understand that it's going on today. And it's just by the grace of God we happen to be born someplace and live someplace where that's not happening to us. Real persecution. Now, we face some, but it's usually much lighter in form and nature for us. To be clear about this, Jesus is not talking about any kind of trouble you get in. Uh, you know, clearly, he, he's talking about trouble that comes our way because we are his and we proclaim him. Uh, Peter will talk about this even much more clearly at, at another point in time in the Bible when he talks about, listen, if you're going to suffer, uh, suffer justly, not unjustly. You know, suffer because you're really doing what's righteous. You know, basically saying, stop being weird. You know, stop being odd. Uh, don't, don't do things that are going to get yourself in trouble and then go, well, you know, I know I didn't show up to work for three days and was late for four days and I fired. That's because I'm a Christian. No, it's not. It's because you didn't show up for three days. That's suffering for Christ's sake. You know, you're suffering because you didn't do what you're supposed to do. You've got to understand, that's not the suffering Jesus is talking about. He's talking about suffering that happens because you took a stand, lived a life that came in conflict with the world. And you felt like the only thing that you had to do was to stand up. In our day and age, you may not get invited to a party or so. Where we live today, you may get called fanatical. In the day that we live in, you may lose a job opportunity. We may even be cut off from some positions. But for the most part, we're going to go ahead and live our lives. We have to understand that, that our beliefs are at odds with a world that hasn't met God's beliefs. Evangelical Christians are one of the largest groups in the United States of America. But have you noticed we don't have one on the Supreme Court? Not one evangelical Christian sits on the Supreme Court. There's, there's, there's other people that I, I hope and believe that the Christians are Christ followers. You know, why is it? Because we have some basic core beliefs that will not get through the test. It comes in conflict with those who haven't met God. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you live by the first part of the Beatitudes... If you have this experience and this desire that drives you to righteousness, no matter how merciful you are, it will still draw a line in the sand between you and the world. It's still going to happen. You can be the most loving, kind, merciful person somebody's ever met, but if you desire righteousness, that desire for righteousness will at times, you'll find yourself having to do what others don't understand, having to say things or do things that, you know, your neighbor, why do you go to church all the time? Can I tell you one of the things that baffles me? It's, it's a, we're a long way from Christmas so I, and Thanksgiving, so I can say this. Every now and then I'll say something like, well, I'm not going to make it to church on Christmas Sunday because all our family's coming in, and they wouldn't understand, or, or I've got to stay home and cook for them and do, and I sit down and look at them. Of all the times you should go to church, that's the day you should go. You should get up in front of all of them and say, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm going to church. If you'd like to come, come join me. Dinner will be a little later today. 
Are, are you hearing me? That, that's the day you make the stand. You, the, the, the Christ follower doesn't sit and say, how do I appease the world? The Christ follower looks and says, how do I proclaim Christ in every action and everything that I do? So there'll be times when you'll do things that others don't understand. And when you do, it'll bring some conflict at times. There will be times when you, when you, find, you're, that you're, that you find yourself with actions you cannot take that others don't understand why you can't take them. Well, you'll be invited to something or invited to participate in something, and you're going to have to say, you know, not me. Thank you, but no thank you. As a, why? Well, as a follower of Christ, I cannot with good conscience do that and be a part of that. And the world is not going to take that lightly. They're not going to look and say, oh, what a committed, what a committed, loving follower of Christ. Don't you just love? They're going to say, that guy is just a freak. I'm just telling you, this is what Jesus tells us is going to happen. Do you still feel like going out and having a picnic today? Our actions will not be taken lightly. We ask why. We see this from the very beginning of creation. Cain and Abel. They both believe in God. Listen, I capture this. Some of the worst persecution you may ever face will be from people who say they believe in God. They both believe in God. They both offered sacrifices to God. The difference was Abel's sacrifice was of the first fruits and was acceptable. Cain's sacrifice was just of whatever he wanted to give. Cain watched as Abel's sacrifice was received and blessed, and the blessing of God was upon it, and his was rejected. And Cain, instead of repenting and doing what's right, Cain gets mad at Abel. And God says to him, What's, what's your problem? What, what's, what's the deal? If, if you do what's right, it'll be received as well. This, is a, this isn't about Abel having some special place with me. It's about him doing what's right and you not doing what's right. Just do what's right. Hear me. What we have to understand about all of this is this. The, the, the sin nature always wants to rewrite the rules to fit their desires. This is going on right in front of our eyes in our culture today. We have people in our culture rewriting the rules of right and wrong, of what's morally correct, rejecting God's rules, rewriting the rules to fit their desires. They always want to have the authority of God and the sin nature is angry with those who experience the hope and the blessing of God. Their lives are challenged by those who are walking in obedience to God. They're convicted by the truth, and so they've got to prove that, that, that what is being said really isn't true. The person who's really committed, they can't be neutral. They have to force others to celebrate with them and to, and to walk with them. They can't just dis dismiss it. They can't stand it because it is a proclamation of where they fall short of the glory of God. They want others to accept their standard. This has always been and always will be because the father of our lies will inspire it in their heart to be against those very things that would lead them to the fullness of God's plan for their life. Jesus warns us that if the world hated him, he warns us, it will also hate those who love him and those who follow him. Wow. 
You can't do that with head knowledge. You've got to have an experience with God. One Roman poet speaking to the plight of Christians in his day and age put it this way. He said, they are the panting, huddling masses whose only crime is Christ. He'd come to this clarity. They're not doing anything wrong. They're not a threat to anyone. They're not trying to, to beat anybody up. They're not trying to take over. They're not trying to be. Their only crime is they follow Christ. Now, I'll tell you, it's easy to never face persecution. You can go to school and never have anybody there facing. You can go to work and never face persecution. It's easy. It's easy not to ever face persecution. All you got to do is just live like the world. That's all you got to do. Take the attitude of it's not my problem. Take the attitude of it's not my business. Take the attitude of everybody can live the way they will. I'm not going to ever say anything about that or criticize it. I'm never going to speak up. I can go along. I can laugh. I can enjoy the entertainment. I'm you know, not going to let my heart be troubled. I'm going to smile at the jokes and... When the, when the world mocks, I'm going to listen. But remember what Jesus says. Jesus says in Luke, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So where's the line? Where's this line of conviction? Where's the line where I'm, I walk humbly before God? And where's the line when I have to speak up and say something and do something? I believe we find the line at the point of conviction. At the point where the still small voice of God in our heart says, stand up. Where the still small voice says, don't do that. Where the still small voice challenges us. See, if I'm sitting with a bunch of Christian friends at, at dinner and everybody's behaving themselves and loving and serving God, I don't, I don't feel that urge to, of conviction this is wrong. Now, sometimes I'm with somebody and they say something and down in the depths of your spirit. And I'll tell you, this is the hardest. This may not be. This is me. I, I thank God I've never felt the urge standing in front of any group of people, whether it's a secular crowd or a, a church crowd, and say anything except what I believe to be the whole truth. I, I'm grateful for God that for whatever reason, I am just numb in that fear point of my life. I've had people say to me, you're going to go talk at that college? Man, aren't you afraid? No, really not. Why are you going to face them? I'm going to go in there. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to tell them the truth, and they're not going to like it. And then I'm going to go home and go to bed. For whatever reason, that, God has just taken that part of fear, fear or worry out of me. You know where it's tougher for me? You're sitting with two or three of your friends, and everybody's just having a good time. And somebody begins to say something maybe a little off color or they say something that is just so, so drastically wrong. And down inside you're going, I just want to have a good time tonight. I don't want to be the bad guy tonight. They didn't invite me here to be the preacher tonight. <laughs> and you got to go, you know, that really isn't right. That really isn't the truth. You're really missing it. And then, you know, you probably won't get invited to the next dinner. Are you hearing me? Where's your point at? Where's the point where you decide to look the other way when the convicting spirit of God is saying, no, it's time to say something? See, at the line of conviction, you will face either compromise or persecution. You'll either compromise and go along with the flow, or you'll face some persecution at some level. David Green is the founder and owner of Hobby Lobby. 
He's also a Christian. He was raised in a Christian home. All of his brothers and sisters are pastors except him. He felt led to go into the retail uh, business. For many years, they thought he was kind of the black sheep that wouldn't go into ministry. Now he's supporting ministries and doing things all around the world as God has blessed him. And he felt led to go into this into this ministry and to, and to build Hobby Lobby. I'm not going to go into all the details today, but he found himself a few years ago, back in about 2013, uh, facing a personal challenge around his business. And it had to do with Obamacare. He was not opposed to offering insurance to his employees. He offered a lot insurance to a lot of his employees. In fact, he paid, paid them all more than any of the minimum wage standards ever were laid out at that time. But the Affordable Care Act required that certain insurance be bought that would pay for medications that would terminate pregnancies after conviction, after conception. And as he read that as the, as the owner of this now vast company, he found himself coming to the conviction that this is a practice that a Christian could not do. He felt like as a follower of Christ, I can't be a part of that. And so he decided that his company was not going to do that. This led him into direct conflict with the government. And the government, the United States government, came in and threatened to fine him $1.3 million a day until he complied. He had until... Uh, July 1st of that next year to do that very thing. He, they, they, they immediately got with some other companies. They filed suit against the government, but they knew it was going to be a long time before that would be settled. They'd have to go through systems, and they knew it would be a long time, and the fines were going to start in just a few months. So they went and they filed uh, an injunction to stop that from having to unfold. And the district judge denied the injunction. So they appealed it to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, and once again, they were denied the injunction. They're now within just a few weeks of having to begin to pay $1.3 million a day, which is going to ruin his company, and, and if they lose this thing, he'll probably lose the company. It goes to Supreme Justice Sonia Sotomayor in a special appeal and she, in turn, denied the injunction to stop the $1.3 million a day fine against the company. This would be the point where most people would cave, don't you think? But they continued to pray, and they didn't know what to do. They finally found a, a way where, through a court of appeals, they could appeal one more time. They had one last appeal to make, and they appealed on the, on the process of pushing the date of the starting of the fines out. And at that point, they won the injunction, not the lawsuit. The injunction did not have to start paying. And now they proceed through the lawsuit. Finally, a year and a half later, the Supreme Court rules in June of 2014 in a five to four, listen, a five to four vote to rule in favor of Hobby Lobby. And that they wouldn't, that this was a family owned business and they would not have to violate their religious beliefs. Antonin Scalia was still one of the Supreme Court justices at that time and was one of the five. Now, listen, he died shortly after that. 
This is why we've got to pray our way through a lot of stuff. Now, we've gotten a little bit of reprieve because whether you like Donald Trump or you hate Donald Trump, he appointed somebody else who's more of a constitutionalist to our Supreme Court who would probably land on the side of the five. That would not have been the case if the other person had won. Now, whether you like it or not, that, that's just a fact of life. But this is a point where he had come to in his life where if he, he, he's written about this extensively, David Green has, that if he lost the company, if it was taken away from him, he could not in good conscience spent thousands if not millions of dollars in lawsuits to pay for things. He said, in good conscience, I could not do this as a Christian. Now, see, that's the question for all of us. Probably none of us in this room will be faced with $1.3 million a day fines. We may be faced with how hostile our workplace is. We may be faced with how much pressure comes in our homes. We may be faced with the rejection of some friends. But as we make this stand, there will be times where we will have to make a decision. Can a true follower of Christ do this? Where's the line between compromise and faithfulness? Where do we draw it in our own, li- in our own lives? Now, I, 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 I'm not going to try to draw a line for you today, but let me give you some of the places where that debate's being held at right now. The place where that debate's being held in a lot of people's lives right now is, is this. Can I vote for a pro-abortion candidate of either party? Can I, in good conscience, as a Christian, vote for somebody who's going to support the taking of lives in the womb? Can I do that? That's where the debate's being held. The debate's being held, can I vote for a candidate whose language and actions are crude? Can I do that? Here's where the debate's being held. Can a clerk give a marriage certificate to a homosexual couple? In my workplace, can I violate Christian principle, Christian truth, and support what isn't Christian that's going to send people to an eternity without Christ? That's where the debate's being held at in our lives right now. Can I laugh at the off-color joke and fit in with the rest of the guys? Can a teacher in a classroom teach evolution as a fact to a classroom of students? Can they in good conscience as a follower of Christ do that? Can a, school, a Christian school administrator support a, a policy that says that homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle that's acceptable and normal, and we're going to receive that, or any other of a, of, of a variety of questions, and not compromise who I am as a Christian. That's where the debates are being held in many people's lives. And they will be held in all of our lives at some point in some place. Can I do this? Can I walk this way, live this way as a follower of Christ or, or do I have to make a stand? And I'll tell you, friend, we can't, we can ask these questions and a dozen more, but the reality is, is where's this line of compromise? And it's most likely found at the place of persecution. Don't think that because you make some stand, the, the miraculous is going to happen and you're going to be defended. There's a great Christian theologian in the second century that you can read about. A man came to him who had been recently converted, 
And he said to him, he said, uh, I have a, uh, the, the job that I have is not in keeping with the life of, of a Christian. What am I to do? After all, I have to live. And this great Christian leader looked at him in all love and mercy and said, do you? Do you have to live? What's he saying? You're a follower of Christ. We're to, to live is to live for Christ. To die is gain. See, if we have to deny Christ his rightful place, if we have to deny his authority in our life, if we have to de deny his lordship in our life, can we truly stand before him saying that we were faithful to him? If we have to compromise our responsibility to live for his glory, if we have to deny the heart of righteousness that beats within the one who's met with God and it destroys the purity of our life, if we have to celebrate sin, if we have to support a lie of the enemy to get along, is Jesus really Lord? If we have to deny God the right to rule, are we really following Christ? Boy, this is a tough word, isn't it? In the days of the early church, Rome ruled the land. Many Christians faced torture and death for simply being followers of Christ. For Rome to hold power over its vast territories, they felt like the Caesars had to be deified. It required that once a year, each person had to give a verbal oath of allegiance to Caesar, saying, Caesar is Lord. After they made that verbal oath, oath they, they, they were free to worship as they pleased. They were free to live as they pleased. They were free to go. But they had to stand in front of everybody and say, Caesar is Lord. Faithful Christians refused to do so. They said they could not in good conscience say that Caesar was Lord when there's only one Lord. That to receive Caesar's Lord is to separate yourself from God. Only Jesus could be Lord. And they refused. They were considered traitors. They suffered confiscation of their property. They suffered loss of work. They suffered imprisonment. And oftentimes, they suffered death. They branded Christians as revolutionaries. Today, if you make a biblical stand, if you stand by the truth of, of the Word of God, you won't be called a revolutionary. But you take a great risk of being called a hater, somebody who hates people because you won't accept their lifestyle the way they live or the way they think. When deep in your heart, you know you don't hate them at all. You love them, want them to find Christ. You're no threat to them. We're no threat to them at all. We want, to, we want them to see the fullness of Christ. There's no true Christian who wants to, uh, true follower of Christ who's, who's met with God that wants to beat anybody into submission or make anybody do anything. We, we know they, they just need to meet Christ. But to stand up and say it's okay and it's right? Can the follower of Christ do that? I wonder at times how much farther behind the label comes the persecution. When you're not able to have certain jobs, you're not able to do certain things unless you proclaim that these things are okay. Jesus said that when you live, when you meet God and you become transformed by God, 
there are two results that are going to happen for you to be built to last. One is the earthly, and the result in the earthly is you're going to face persecution sometimes. The second, the second result is this. It's eternal, and he says, great is your reward in heaven. See, this concept of seeing who God is takes our eyes off of this earth and puts our eyes on the eternal. It takes our eyes off of the rewards of this earth, and it puts our eyes upon the eternal rewards. And Jesus says, when you've met God, you're going to be thinking about the eternal rewards, and you're going to say, blessed am I that I face persecution. The, 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 the disciples, when they were first persecuted for being a Christian, they came out of that room, and instead of moaning and groaning and asking where God was, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' sake. Wow. Wow. I don't believe that we're called to go looking for persecution. As a society that's becoming increasingly secular, I think we'll find ourselves in places of either compromise or persecution. And only those built to last will survive. I don't believe I face much persecution for being a Christian. But I am afraid for what my children and grandchildren are going to have to face to be a Christian in our nation. I know that God's grace is sufficient for them, and he will give them strength if they lean into him. But I also know that the Spirit is able to move and heal our land today. And those of us who are followers of Christ need to be serious about standing our ground, being faithful to Christ, being a witness for his glory, and praying for his healing power. Amen? Let's stand and give the Lord a clap offering today. He is good and worthy. God, you are worthy. Father, in just a moment, we're going to go out and do one of the things that the church does. We're going to have fellowship together. And, and I just pray that, Father, you'll bless it. Father, maybe there's some in this room right now that are, maybe some are facing persecution because of their own actions, and they think it's because they're a Christian, and it's not. Don't, don't let us live in that deception. But some may be facing some persecution because they're a follower. Give them strength today. And Father, as we walk through this life, I pray you would touch us and speak to us about how to live each day so that we do not compromise that we would lovingly, kindly, without anger or animosity or judgment, speak the truth in love, with kindness, with mercy, with gentleness, and yet with clarity and truth. And Lord, if persecution comes our way, we're going to trust you to give us strength to feel blessed in the middle of it. But Lord, help us to be faithful to you as your son was faithful to us all the way to the cross. For the sake of the loss, we pray. Be upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.